You're listening to the podcast series from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow, Episode 7, Nehemiah. It is 458 or maybe 457 BCE, and Ezra's mission had, for all practical intents and purposes, failed. He had led a group of returnees back from Babylonia to Jerusalem with what appears to have been the full backing of the Persian rulers only a year earlier. According to our limited sources, as I have discussed in the last two episodes of this podcast, he applied himself most vigorously to two goals. The first was to teach the newly redacted Law of Moses to the descendants of those Jews who had earlier returned with Sheshbazar and then Zerubbabel. They were unfamiliar with much of its contents, including, most surprisingly, some of the holidays, such as Rosh Hashanah and Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Ezra had, in fact, more than a wishful desire to persuade these Jews to follow God's will as he, Ezra the scribe and priest, understood it. He also had permission of the king of Persia to enforce the Torah's laws and to use the coercive organs of the state. His second area of focus was intermarriage, which he defined as marriage to the descendants of the Israelites who had never went into exile under the Babylonians, and marriage to whom he saw as an impure abomination. As we saw in episode 5, Ezra did not get very far. He hardly began instructing the people in the new laws, and his program against intermarriage came to very little. In the process, Ezra appears to have gotten sacked. He hardly lasted a year. And then it seems things went more or less back to normal. Thirteen years later, in 445 BCE, another rabble-rouser, Nehemiah, would also come from Babylonia to Jerusalem to shake things up. In this episode, I will discuss his longer, although perhaps not more successful, career. At the outset, I should note that we really have only a single source for considering Nehemiah's career, that of the biblical book of Nehemiah. This is hardly an unbiased source. It is composed primarily of what is reputed to be Nehemiah's own self-serving memoir, a first-person glorification of his accomplishments and condemnation of his enemies. My own reading of this memoir goes somewhat against its grain. So, as always, I encourage you to read this short book for yourself. Let's go back to what I just said a minute ago. What do I mean that things went back to normal after Ezra? We can get a general sense of the state of Jerusalem and the Persian province of beyond the river from Nehemiah's scattered reports about what he found when he returned. Within Jerusalem, there was a Jewish elite class who controlled much of the economic activity of the city. We should probably presume that this class was comprised primarily of the descendants of the earlier returnees, who did, after all, have Persian backing. The primary way that they kept this backing was by submitting in a timely fashion the taxes and gifts demanded by the Persian king. They would have raised these gifts from a larger tax base. And thus we can presume, although this is entirely speculative, that they could wield some kind of credible threat of coercion. These Jerusalem nobles had good relations with their neighbors. Two of the neighboring leaders mentioned in the book of Nehemiah were themselves worshipers of the God of Israel, 
although Nehemiah, in his enmity toward them, sought to cover this up. One was Sanballat the Horonite, as he is called in Nehemiah. Sanballat was a Sumerian, and we fortunately possess a catch of seals and letters that testify independently to the existence of his family. His was a family who retained an important official position under the Persian authorities right up until Alexander's conquest in Samaria, the area to the north of Jerusalem. How do we know that they were worshippers of the God of Israel? Remember those theophoric names, names that contain the name of the deity? The seals and other evidence shows that members of the Sanballat family took names that commonly used the word Yah, name of the Israelite God. Moreover, Nehemiah reports scornfully, Sanballat's daughter married the son of the Jerusalem high priest. The second character is a bit more interesting, Tobiah. There again at the end, you can hear that theophoric name. Tobiah is a bit more intriguing than Sanballat. As with Sanballat, we possess independent archaeological evidence testifying to his existence. In his case, mainly remains of a palace that dates from the 5th or 4th centuries BCE and papyri from the Hellenistic period. The palace is located over the Jordan River and contains an inscription in Aramaic script with the name Tobiah. The papyri testified to the continuing importance of the family for centuries. Like Sanballat, Nehemiah admits, Tobiah's family had married into the priestly families. Even more so, though, they had a chamber reserved for Tobiah himself in the Jerusalem temple. So, from this evidence, along with some reports by the later historian Josephus that seem to draw on earlier authentic accounts, we are dealing here with another powerful family, devotees of the God of Israel. Nehemiah, though, doesn't refer to Tobiah as such. Instead, Nehemiah likes to call him the Ammonite servant. This is a clever insult. It is true that Tobiah, based over the Jordan River, in what today we call Jordan, the country, is from the biblical land of Ammon. But to be called an Ammonite is not a good thing. It evokes the evil tribe of biblical times that persecuted Israel. There were no real Ammonites left by Nehemiah's time. But this clearly would have been perceived as a slur, kind of like calling him anti-Israel. The word servant, too, has a double resonance. Technically, it can refer to a vassal of the king, a relatively high status. We can imagine that Tobiah really had this kind of status with the Persians. The term, though, Ebed, also means slave, and Nehemiah implies the latter for Tobiah. Nehemiah, as we shall see soon, quickly crosses these two notables, along with a third local noble, Geshem, who appears to have been an Arab chieftain. Nehemiah was himself no slouch. He reports that he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, when he received word that Jerusalem's walls were ruined and her inhabitants not doing well. The former claim was true, the latter is less certain but it conveniently positions Nehemiah as a popular savior. To be the king's cupbearer, a member of the royal court, was a position with status, 
and he manages to get from Artaxerxes himself permission to, as he says, send me to Judah to the city of my ancestors' graves to rebuild it. Artaxerxes also gave him official letters, access to lumber for the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and his own house. Unlike Ezra, Nehemiah did not refuse the offer of the Persian army's protection for his journey. Nehemiah was a politician with ambitions, not a scribe. Three days after arriving in Jerusalem, he secretly surveyed the city's fortifications. The book of Nehemiah frames this account with notices of the hostility of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, in answer to whose threatening taunts Nehemiah responds, The God of heaven will grant us success, and we, his servants, will begin building. But you have no share or claim or stake in Jerusalem. Building the walls of Jerusalem is a significant topic in the book of Nehemiah. The account of the rebuilding takes up at least half of the book. But why would he care so? Nehemiah's account doesn't quite hang together. He offers two primary justifications for the rebuilding. First is the animosity of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who are said to want to attack and fight against Jerusalem. The second justification is that the ruined walls were disgraceful. For their part, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, according to Nehemiah's account, accuse Nehemiah of wanting to rebel against the king. None of these reasons make much sense. All of these characters, including Nehemiah, were subjects of and apparently loyal to the Persian regime. Assuming that Nehemiah accurately reports that he told the king that he would rebuild the walls, he could not be accused of treason. And there is, in fact, no report in the book that the Persians looked into the matter as they did with Ezra's rebuilding of the temple. Nor does it make any sense to think that the other nobles would attack Jerusalem when the Persian overlords would undoubtedly disapprove. The disgrace of Jerusalem by itself, as we typically understand the sentiment, could hardly motivate such an extensive building project. I think that Nehemiah's rebuilding and some of his other actions is instead better if only partially explicable by considering his own ambitions. It is perhaps not a coincidence that Nehemiah lived during a time of Greek tyrants, local chieftains whose power was based in a single city and its environs. Nehemiah's first activities appear to have been to establish his own base of power in Jerusalem and to bring to his side enough force to present a credible alternative to the local entrenched aristocrats. Repairing the walls of Jerusalem, then, could have served two functions. Practically, the walls did not matter very much. Nehemiah would have attempted to establish his power within rather than against the Persian Empire, and he would have had little to fear from other Persian vassals. So the primary function was symbolic. What kind of leader, after all, would have a city with broken walls? The walls were symbolic of the power of the city, and strong walls would mean a strong city that would add power and prestige to its ruler. In the ancient world, loyalty came primarily in the form of city loyalty, and it is in this context that the disgrace of Jerusalem makes most sense. By rebuilding the walls, Nehemiah also positions himself 
in the eyes of Jerusalem's residents as a supporter and defender of the city, thus again enhancing his own power base. A second reason for repairing the walls, though, was more concrete. Like any public works project, it provided employment. Nehemiah gave portions of the work to different clans. It appears that these clan leaders thus could provide patronage to their own members, which in turn would enhance their own loyalty to Nehemiah. Nehemiah may have tried to heighten the sense of danger among the workers, to spur them to work faster, and to foster solidarity. According to chapter 4 of the book of Nehemiah, at any given time, half of Nehemiah's servants actually worked on the wall, and the other half, heavily armed, stood guard, according to Nehemiah, against the plotting of Jerusalem's enemies. One wonders if the display of arms may not have been more directed toward the workers themselves. In any case, it is telling that after rebuilding the walls, Nehemiah's next act is to annul debts. Nehemiah summoned the nobles and the prefects and insisted that rather than pressing claims on the loans that they made to the people, they abandon all such claims. According to the narrative, the nobles did so rather agreeably. Give back at once their fields, their vineyards, their olive trees, and their homes, and abandon the claims for the hundred pieces of silver, the grain, the wine, and the oil that you have been pressing against them, Nehemiah demands, in chapter 5, verse 11. Immediately they replied, We shall give them back and not demand anything of them. We shall do just as you say. And, according to the narrative, they did exactly that. I think that the account of this episode hides a more complex reality. What creditor, after all, would agree so quickly and easily to such a proposal? Nehemiah's intentions are patent. By seeking the welfare of the debtors, he is also seeking their political support. Ultimately, what Nehemiah has now at his disposal is the mob, and he uses the mob to intimidate the local aristocracy. These creditors would have abandoned their claims only if they felt they had no choice, for by doing so, they were also sacrificing their wealth and thus their own power. At the same time, he is rebuilding the walls and gaining through his patronage the loyalty of some of the clans. He is stripping others of their power and gaining the support of the mob. There is yet another power base whose support Nehemiah thought crucial, the prophets. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are said to accuse Nehemiah of buying off the prophets. You have also set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, there is a king in Judah, they are reported to have written him. Nehemiah strenuously denies the charge, but then immediately reports that his enemies have schemed with the prophets to lure him into a trap. Nehemiah tells of a prophet who advised him to shut himself up in the sanctuary. Had he done so, Nehemiah quickly realizes he would have committed a sacrilege and, as he puts it, provide them a scandal with which to reproach me. He then also names a prophetess, one of only four female prophets named in the Hebrew Bible, as in on the scheme. The outcome of this battle for the support of the prophets is unclear. Nehemiah does not explicitly tell us that he succeeded in getting the prophets who were opposed to him removed. 
it would certainly have been understandable if the institutionalized prophets saw Nehemiah as an upstart and remained loyal to the established elite. At some point thereafter, exactly how long is unclear, Nehemiah called an assembly. As I mentioned in previous episodes, chapter 8 of Nehemiah, in which Ezra the scribe reads the Torah to the assembly, is probably a later editorial insertion. The insertion can perhaps be explained by looking at the beginning of the next chapter. Chapter 9 opens with a description of the communal assembly, confession, and prayer called by Nehemiah, which occurs, curiously, on the 24th day of the seventh month. I think that some editors saw this date, had on hand the account of Ezra's assembly, which occurred at the beginning of that same month, and mistakenly assumed that these two accounts were continuous. In any case, what follows is a long prayer made before the assembly of the people, which really is a condensed version of Israelite history. The point of this historical narrative is to put Nehemiah and the Jerusalem community directly on the line of the sacred narrative of Israel's history. That is, Nehemiah's community stands in the direct and legitimate line of the divine promise. Nehemiah's ambitions may have grown by this time. He, if it is in fact his own speech, ends with the declaration that in punishment for their sins, they are now slaves on a land that yields its produce to kings whom you have set over us. They rule over our bodies and our beasts as they please and we are in great distress. The statement is almost defiant. Almost, but not quite. His point, it turns out, is not to separate from the Persians. Rather, it is, like Ezra before him, to separate from the peoples of the land, that is, the descendants of the Israelites who never left the land in exile, and whose previous returnees who married into those families. He thus called on the pure community to make a pact, to observe carefully, as he states, all the commandments of the Lord our God, his rules, and his laws. The pact then goes on to stipulate the eight commandments to which they are binding themselves. Predictably, the very first stipulation is to avoid intermarriage. In the context of any reasonable reading of the Torah, this is a peculiar place to begin. It does, though, make much more sense when we remember the emphasis that Ezra put on pure genealogy. Nehemiah, it turns out, is not just a self-serving politician. He also has an ideology, a kind of religious platform to which he subscribes and that he will now, by means of his office, impose on the other residents of Jerusalem. The second commandment concerns the Sabbath, but with an unexpected emphasis. The people bind themselves not not to work on the Sabbath, perhaps this was taken for granted, but not to buy foodstuffs from the peoples of the land on the Sabbath and the holy days. The stipulation, of course, raises the question, unanswered, as to whether they can buy things on the Sabbath from members of their own community. The third stipulation commits to observing the sabbatical year. They are to forego the produce and cancel debts every seventh year. 
The remaining five stipulations all concern the temple, priests, and Levites. They tax themselves in order to support the temple service and obligate themselves to bring first fruits, the firstborn, and other tithes to the Levites. All, including the priests and Levites, must supply the wood used in the temple. The two themes present in these eight stipulations are emphasized in the continuing narrative. The next two chapters contain long genealogical records, which highlight again Nehemiah's concern with purity and separation from those who are not pure. The second theme of the stipulations, the temple, converges with Nehemiah's interest in reestablishing Jerusalem as a viable city-state within the Persian Empire. The temple stood for more than the central place for the worship of the God of Israel, although that was no small thing in itself. Nehemiah seems to want to position it as the economic engine of the city. The temple was to create an influx of capital from the countryside in the form of annual monetary taxes and produce that undoubtedly would not only enrich the priests and Levites, but would also generate economic activity throughout Jerusalem. Perhaps this also helps to account for that second stipulation, the prohibition against doing business on the Sabbath with the peoples of the land who bring their wares into Jerusalem. The point was to bring capital into the city, not to send it out. The emphasis on Jerusalem also resulted in planned settlement. The beginning of chapter 11 of the book of Nehemiah tells us that the officers of the people settled in Jerusalem along with a tenth of this community, chosen by lots. The text carefully but vaguely asserts that people settled willingly in Jerusalem, naturally leading us to suspect that this was not quite as willing a settlement as Nehemiah had hoped for. The money had not yet arrived in Jerusalem, and without it there would be little to generate prosperity in the city. Nehemiah needed population in Jerusalem, and perhaps he offered a combination of incentives and disincentives to get people to settle there. As with Ezra, Nehemiah's text hints that despite Ezra's efforts, things did not go according to plan. Nehemiah's relationship with the family of Tobiah remained difficult for him. Chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah begins with another broadside against intermarriage with Ammonites. The condemnation seems out of place, unless it is seen as connected to the story that immediately follows it, concerning a certain Eliashib, a priest related to Tobiah, who had given Tobiah, as I mentioned earlier, a room in the temple. The Tobias were not going to easily give up their entrenched positions. Things, in fact, were quickly falling apart. Twelve years after Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, that is now in 434 BCE, he returned to the court of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah does not tell us why, and he does not tell us how long he stayed. It is certainly not inconceivable that he was, in fact, recalled. Like Ezra, maybe he stirred up too much trouble, made too many powerful political enemies. Whether away for a long time or short, he was dismayed upon his return. The first thing he says he did on his return was to strike against Tobiah, ejecting him from the sanctuary and purifying the rooms he inhabited. Tobiah was lumped with the impure. 
It was not just Tobiah, though. In chapter 13, verse 10, Nehemiah states, I then discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been contributed, and that the Levites and the singers who performed the sacrifice had made off, each to his own field. Without Nehemiah's presence, the tithing system had fallen apart, and the Levites quite understandably returned to more fertile land, where they could feed themselves and their families. Nehemiah tells us that he acted quickly to get the Levites back to Jerusalem. At that point, for whatever reason, the people began again to bring their tithes. All, though, was still not good. In Nehemiah's absence, those who entered into the New Covenant neglected not only the stipulations relating to the temple, but those relating to separation. People quickly returned to buying goods from foreigners on the Sabbath. Nehemiah's response was to bar the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath and drive away the merchants who sought entry on the Sabbath. And remember that first stipulation, not to intermarry? Well, you got it. Also at that time, Nehemiah protests, I saw that Jews had married Ashdodite, Ammonite, and Moabite women. A good number of their children spoke that language of Ashdod and the language of those various peoples and did not know how to speak Judean. Nehemiah gave them a thorough tongue lashing and then drove away precisely one intermarried priest, who was also, undoubtedly coincidentally, the son-in-law of his enemy Sanballat. Even the wood offering seems to have been neglected. And so the book of Nehemiah ends, Oh my God, remember it to my credit. But did Nehemiah succeed? And if so, at what precisely? Like Ezra's reforms, Nehemiah's did not seem to take. The trajectory of the narrative is not hopeful. It is very easy to imagine that as soon as Nehemiah dies, the people reverted right back to what they were doing, and the entrenched aristocracy in the region, like Tobiah and Sanballat, retained their power. Politically, Nehemiah seems to have succeeded at rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and maybe for reinforcing the authority of the Levites. Interestingly, Nehemiah leaves no offspring that we know of to continue his reign, something that we would expect from a Greek tyrant from that time. Nehemiah's most lasting legacy might be the very fact of the covenant that he made. However ineffective it ended up being, the effect of this covenant was to create a subgroup within Israel. The group's identity was, moreover, based upon purity and separation. It thus constituted, as Shia Cohen calls it, a kind of proto-sect. We will return in later episodes to Jewish sectarianism, but some of the themes that underlie them, that is, the emergence of these Jewish sects in the Hellenistic period, can also be seen in this early group. If we assume that this proto-sectarian group was relatively small, as most such groups are, and as indicated by the relative failure of Nehemiah's reforms, we might ask about the beliefs and activities of the larger community of Jews, whether in Jerusalem or beyond. What did they think, and how did they worship their God? Throughout the last few episodes, I have alluded several times to these Jews, although what we know about them 
is almost entirely speculative, derived from the canonical literary texts at our disposal. We have a few inscriptions, some shreds of papyri relating to the families of Tobiah and Sanballat, but otherwise we have precious little in the way of these Jews of the Persian Empire speaking for themselves. That is, with one exception. A small group of Jewish mercenaries working for the Persian regime found itself garrisoned on an Egyptian island in the Nile at a place called Elephantine by modern-day Aswan. Modern excavations unearthed a catch of documents from this community that testify, even if incompletely, to the lives, interactions, and worship of these Jews. I will discuss them in the next episode. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.